Father in heaven, thank you so much for your work of grace and your kindness to us. We thank you for your saving work through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask for today that you would help us to consider how sweet our Savior is, uh, how expensive and costly our redemption, that you might stir in us a love for our Savior, a desire and love for holiness, a thankfulness that leads us to be willing to suffer for him if that is what you have in front of us. And Lord, we ask for a special grace this morning that you would help us to understand your word better, that we might rightly divide it, and that we might be people who are approved as good and faithful workmen rather than those who are lazy and unable to accurately understand your word. So help us, we pray, because we need that divine assistance to understand and apply your word correctly. So help us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Um, last week, we had kind of spent a little bit of time on, really, if we're going to use dispensations, we're the dispensation that went from Moses till when? I would say till Pentecost. Um, you have the death of Christ to Pentecost kind of being that transition of about 50 days. Um, that actually is, frankly, fairly common to have kind of a transition between these dispensations. It's not like you know, at noon, sharp, you know, new government of God rolls in and everyone that was in the old government's got to transition over. So we come to page 14. We mentioned that this is called the dispensation of grace because that's in, in some ways how Paul contrasts it. That is, he would say that he's a minister of grace. And so that, that's helpful for us. It's not, I, I think the caution I want you all to hear is it's not as though God's grace wasn't existent or present for the Old Testament saint. It very much was. So that, that's not the contrast. The contrast really is between uh, the management under the Mosaic law. Paul contrasts, I would say, almost a false theology of law, the Pharisaical approach, versus an approach that understands God's grace. So, and that's just become a euphemism for this dispensation. Okay, page 14. Although all eras, eras of God's rule have received God's grace, the dispensation has received that title of grace because of Exactly what I just said, in John, as well as in Ephesians, it's called a stewardship of God's grace. Revelation, the person and life of Jesus is the most complete revelation God could give. And then the New Testament serves as the charter document. I think we covered a little bit of this last week before we paused, but it's good to hit review. Jesus um, began a new and living way to God through a once-for-all sacrifice. Um, I think uh, there's a little bit of tension here just to kind of flag it. Ezekiel prophesies that there will be sacrifices in the, in the new temple that Ezekiel talks about. So I think we recognize that those sacrifices are not, um, they're somewhat analogous maybe to our Lord's Supper. They're memorial. They're not meant to be efficacious or doing anything. They're meant to be an expression of salvation already accomplished through Christ. And then, um, where are we at here? Uh, point, I guess it's 2, 2i. The New Testament reveals the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of the promises to Eve, Abraham, and David. We didn't talk a lot about David's promises, but we'll, we'll hopefully get to the covenants next week and deal with the Abrahamic, Davidic, and the New Covenant, and that will be helpful for you all, I think. Uh, if you have any questions that are really valuable, don't feel, don't feel bad asking them out of turn um, before the notes get there. But um, Continue on there. I guess lowercase, Roman numeral three. The New Testament promises the return of Jesus Christ in glory. Uh, Roman numeral four, the New Testament begins a new body called the church. Constitutes a new group through which God is working in his present age. Okay, so what is the church? 
The church is all true believers from Pentecost until the rapture, whether in heaven or on earth. Okay, the universal church then is all believers during this era, regardless of life or death. Okay, so it's not as though when you die, you stop being part of the church. And that, I think it's helpful for us. The local church is the visible expression. Then we have the historical church is the visible expression of the body through all the earth whose members are presently alive. So we would say like the church in China, us, we're, we're the historical church. And until we die, but even if, if you personally die, you're still part of the universal church, but Lord willing, Crossway would still exist. Hopefully none of us is so important that if you die, the church is done. Um, composition, the church is formed and increases as Jesus adds people to the church. We had a question last week. Um, that was a, a helpful question. I don't know that it was fully understood, but my, my understanding of Old Testament believers that are going through this transition is that all of them probably came into the church. I think that's why you see such a rapid conversion in Jerusalem, is that you had real regenerate people who were true believers in God in the Old Testament system, and then Peter gets up and says, Jesus is the Lamb. And wholesale, those regenerate people, um, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of God, come in. Not, not because they're going from sinner to saint, but because they're going from Old Testament saint to church saint. Um, I think you see that in Acts 20 with John's disciples. Something similar to that is going on there. Okay, so it's responsibility. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. More is demanded now than in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is nonspecific. Now we have much more clarity and specificity. Um, I, this may be a helpful analogy that we can run with over the next couple of weeks, but I think when we consider revelation, um, that is Old Testament to New Testament revelation, did the Old Testament tell us about Jesus Christ? Not by name. But, but here, would be, here would be what I think, I think we see is that we get clarity, we get more light, but the outlines of the Old Testament aren't radically changed to different storylines, different things, right? So, so we have this promise of, of a seed of Eve who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's consistent with who Jesus is. And it's almost as though you walk into a room that's almost dark, and from Genesis to Revelation, the room gets brighter and brighter, and you see with more clarity. What I'm concerned with in covenantalism is when they go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what you actually have is the shadowy figure of, let's just go bedroom here, of your bed, which you can kind of see when it's dim, and then the lights go on, <clears throat> and in this analogy, that's Jesus, that, that covenant, covenant theology sees Jesus. But when we talk about the people of God, the dresser, in the other side of the bedroom, in the Old Testament it's a dresser, you turn the lights on, and it's a kid's play car. And it's, a, it's something totally different. And that's one of my concerns with, with Revelation, that what we see in the Old Testament doesn't get changed by definition in the New. It gets brighter, it gets clearer, it gets more particular, but it doesn't become something different in the light of the New Testament revelation. I think, that's, I think that's just how language works and generally how God's word works. Um, like I said, when we get to the covenants next week, we'll really start seeing some of the ways in which uh, covenant theology 
and dispensational theology diverge, and hopefully that will be helpful, and, and I do a good job of presenting at least where we're different in a way that's true. Every time, in fact, Caleb Lawson, who's not here this week, he's uh, in Louisville, sent me a video of three or four covenant guys talking about dispensationals, and these guys with PhDs who are, are, are studied people. Did you get the text, Jeremy? It's like, they do not understand what I believe. Like, like this is not a private thing, but, but <clears throat> I don't remember the, the figure's name. He's a historical guy, um, a guy that teaches history, and uh, picture him. He spoke at Shepherds, but he said, he, like, immediately is like, yeah, dispensationalists have two forms of salvation. Like, no, literally for the last 80 years, dispensationalists have been accused of that and have repeatedly put into print that's not true. Um, but because of a poorly framed note in the Schofield Bible, that's been a criticism that has constantly been pushed against dispensationalism. Um, I don't want to do that to covenantalism in the coming weeks, is my point. I, I want Stephen Nichols. <coughs> you figured it out? I was just stunned because, like, he should know better. Well, I, I don't want, if, if a covenantal guy were sitting in the room, I wouldn't want him to say that's not what we believe. You know, that's unfair. Uh, so I would, I would like the same treatment back, but in terms of church life, I don't think as a pastor or shepherd, I do a good service to our church by criticizing something that doesn't really exist in anyone's mind. I really want you to understand uh, the why, or at least closely to, to what they believe as, as I can present it, and as faithfully as I can present it. Um, because I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the right approach to Scripture, but I think godly people believe it, and I can understand why they believe it. All right, I want to move on. So responsibility to repent and believe. Number two, express faith by becoming part of Christ's body. <clears throat> I, I don't know that I could say that any more strongly, but if you don't see membership behind the obligation of the New Testament Christian, I would encourage you to start reading your New Testament again. Um, we are to be ministers for the Lord. We are to be baptized and share in the Lord's Supper regularly. We're to worship the Lord in the local assembly. Number two, we're to minister to other believers. Every, every believer has been gifted, and every believer is, is responsible to exercise that gift in the church body. And then ministry to non-believers. By giving them the gospel, we're to live in submission to the Spirit's work through the Word, and thereby be transformed into the image of Christ. This is part of the recovery of what was lost when sin entered and corrupted humanity through Adam. Let me make a point. I don't think I have it later in this. But I would suggest to you that in the Old Testament... <clears throat> The, the religion and um, civic responsibility, the religious and civic responsibility of the believer is joined. Right? So if, if you're a believer in Israel and you're called to, um, to go to the temple and pay a temple tax, is that religious or civil? If you're, if you're not supposed to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, is that religious or civil? Or I guess you could say, or ceremonial. I'm, I'm giving two big distinctions. Um, I would suggest to you that civil, ceremonial, and civil, ceremonial, moral is a division that's not only never in the Bible, it's actually unbiblical. But I get where it's coming from. Like, I get why the division exists. Um, but I think when you look in James, if you offend in one point of the law, how much of the law have you violated? All of it. It's a whole. 
you can't separate um, obligations to the law into categories and say, I'll obey one and not the other. I think those divisions are unhelpful, but I think you can kind of see where they arise from. What gets set aside in Christ is often the civil type of, or excuse me, the ceremonial type of stuff, right? The sacrificial system, the priestly garments, the temple. And, and so it's a, it's a category I don't think exists in the Old Testament, but it's, it's the religious expression that had a lot of um, symbolism behind it is set aside because the symbolism is fulfilled in Christ. But I'd suggest to you the whole law has been set aside. So look with me in 1 Corinthians 10, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 9. probably actually where I should have a third point of responsibility in the notes. And we see something like under, think, think like under someone's authority. Right? Like your children are under your authority. Okay? It's, not, it's not a literal under, it's a, it's a metaphorical way to speak of obligated to obey. All right, so we come to verse 19 of, of 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. He's talking about types of people, all categories of people, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lengthen that so you understand this, this sentence here. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the authority of the law, I became as one under the authority of the law. Though not being myself under that authority of the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, as outside the authority of the law. Not being outside the authority of the law of God, but under the authority of the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside the authority of the Old Testament law. Okay, so do you see what's going on there in Paul's mind? So when he's with Jewish people, and they're following some of the ceremonial uh, prescriptions of the law, like, for instance, not eating bacon. Guess what Paul wouldn't eat with them? Bacon. Why? Is it because he thinks he needs to not eat bacon or yeah, not eat bacon to be saved? Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word conscience, but I think it's an unnecessary confusion about his obligation to please the Lord. Right, because they would they would have that in their mind, right? I am pleasing Yahweh by not eating pork. Paul is displeasing Yahweh by eating pork, and now he's going to tell me how he how we should honor God, and he clearly doesn't take God seriously. It's going to be a stumbling block, a a a logical, theological, and I think probably loyalty problem that Paul would have in explaining the gospel. Right? Would you listen to someone? Would you want a pastor? who is living in open and flagrant sin, preaching to you about holiness. Right, so when Paul's calling people to understand and obey and submit to the word of God, part of his testimony, especially the Jewish people, has got to be that he is a person loyal to God's word. So he's, he is engaging with Jewish people in such a way that the law is honored in his behavior, the Old Testament law, even though he doesn't look at it and say, I'm obligated, Right? It might be, um, you know, similarly, 
Uh, I, I have a missionary friend in Turkey who they have some type of traditional Turkish drink, and it's alcoholic. I don't think it's significantly a big deal. Like, like I don't think it's hard liquor, and you're not drinking a gallon of it. But it's like traditional in some way. Like it, everyone gets this like little shot glass of like wine. It's not going to cause you to get drunk. It's not a big deal, but it's really offensive not to take it. And so he, his, his mission board has a no drinking policy. <laughs> so he's in this really challenging dynamic where he knows culturally he's going to be offensive. And I think, I think he's quietly gotten permission from his mission board not to offend his Turkish associates. Because it's just like, what do you do in this situation? Well, your goal is you're trying not to insult them by basically telling them that you won't receive from them hospitality or kindness, that you're, you're, you're rejecting them if you don't drink it. What's funny is his dad came over, and his dad won't drink. <laughs> and so he was a little bit embarrassed about his dad. But his dad is so gracious, I'm sure it wasn't an issue anyway. But just one of those challenging situations. I can imagine Paul being put in those types of places with Jewish people. So what does he do with a Gentile person? They serve bacon. What does Paul do? He eats, he eats bacon. He, he, I think the point is he's not offensive. He is willing to give up his liberty. But that's the whole point is liberty is never owned. It's always given up. Right? When I hear about people talking about Christian liberty and they say, hey, it's my liberty to do X, Y, or Z, Paul never uses it that way. He always says it's my liberty, therefore I can give it away. Right, so I could do this, but in liberty, I don't need to, so I give it away. I give away my freedom to act in that way. Okay, so when he eats with Gentiles, he gives away his, his maybe his own preferences and lives like someone who doesn't have the law over him. Now, if he has the law over him, what would that be called? If you're a Jewish person under the authority of the law and you eat bacon, that's called sin. Paul is not advocating for sin. So what is he telling us here? Is he a lawless man? Is he, a, is he someone with totally fluid morality that'll do whatever he feels like in the moment? Is that what he's saying? Okay, how do you know that? What, what is he actually under the authority of? He says he's under the law of Christ. And you can see the strong contrast there between the Old Testament law and the, this, this law of Christ, which I would take as the New Testament documents. That is, he sees himself fully obligated to the whole moral, theological, civil expectation of the New Testament documents. All of it. Now, I wouldn't exclude from there the Sermon on the Mount um, for, for a couple different reasons. I know some people struggle with that because the Sermon on the Mount is written in Jesus, kind of exegesis of the Old Testament law code, isn't it? But I think, I think we at least look at that and recognize what he's doing and and we, we put ourselves under the words of Christ there. So if Jesus says, leave your sacrifice at the altar, I don't think we have sacrifices commanded in the New Testament, but we do have a principle of worship that does carry across. And I think that's, it doesn't, it's not very hard for us to do that, but we should be diligent to know the law of Christ. All right, moving on. Failure. Vast majority of the people will personally reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. So we know that despite the power of the gospel of Christ, aside from the fact that Christ has died for the sins and offers the gospel freely to all who would come and believe, the vast majority of people will still reject it. It's interesting how intuitively we know this. 
right? Like if I, if, if I just sent a missionary to scour the apartments to the south of us and the north of us for the next three years, would you expect a majority or a minority of those people would ever turn to Christ? We, we, we understand the gospel is, is a gospel that divides, but it's not a gospel that sees massive like percentages of majority people. Uh, broadest way that leads to destruction. So generally the world and all humanity reject the Savior. Number two, the rise of false gospels, false teachers, and false churches will inevitably give excuse to the many for rejection of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, I think, indicates this. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So why are there many denominations and world religions? Quote George Bush, strategery, right? Like this is Satan's strategery. It, it's, it's the best way for him to inoculate, at least in his strategy, it's the best way for him to inoculate the world against the gospel of Jesus Christ is to have so many subtle variations that take away the essence of the gospel but leave behind a lot of the residue so that people see the gospel and they see all the false religions of the world and they say something like, they're all good, just choose one. You know which one the unregenerate man will never choose? In his own power without the grace of the Holy Spirit, he'll never choose the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I think that, that allows for us, I think, at least to understand the New Testament says Satan disguised himself this way. We should expect that there are a lot of people who say they're Christians a lot of religious systems in the world that say they're Christian that are, in fact, satanic. I, I generally try to be careful with how I throw bombs in, in the larger assembly of our church. But I, I think we ought to recognize that the Catholic Church, which probably historically, let's go back to like 300, 400, would have basically been a lot of believers that through the Middle Ages they turned away from Christ and is now one of the primary agents of Satan to damn the world. Now, the reason I'm saying that is not because I'm trying to throw Catholic people under the bus. I'm talking about the system of the Catholic Church that obscures the gospel of Jesus Christ and has victimized thousands and thousands in this community. Could there be a Catholic person who is a believer and in a Catholic church? Yes, I think generally God's grace pulls them out of that place because it is not God's place. It is not the church of Christ. It's a false, it's a false place of, of false gospel, but it looks good. I remember saying something along these lines to someone I was having a good conversation with, and this is back in the days of Pope John Paul II, who was a beloved pope. And they just were stunned that I would say something unkind about this grandpa type of sweet devout man like they're i mean they're they're offended for his sake that i would say he's he's a minister of the false gospel and he is not one of god's agents so it's no surprise if his servants disguise themselves in the servants of righteousness no surprise okay so there's general failure spiritual failure mankind consistent with his nature will demonstrate that he rejects god out of desire to excuse his love for his unrighteous behavior um, Romans 1, 18, 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I'm not going to like go into the, the cultural rabbit trail here, but I think um, you know the rage of abortion right now in our court system, things like this, what we're really seeing is a rejection of a lot of the principles of God's word because ultimately there's a rejection of God himself. Like, I, I think the destruction of human life, whether it is through euthanizing an older person who's lost their uh, capacity to live well, or however that would be measured, or whether it's an unborn person, the, the essence of this is a rejection of God himself. Right? Like, it's, it's not merely about the life of the baby. And there's, there's a theological problem that pervades humanity, we don't like the God who made us. We don't want to be accountable to him. And we don't value him nor his image. Therefore, uh, I think infanticide and abortion is going to be a, an inevitable outcome. And so how do we excuse abortion? We love the mom. Right? So this, I, think, I think the microcosm of this is, is helpful because then when we talk to a lot of people who are, and I'm going to just use air quotes, who are good people, they don't recognize the corruption within the human soul. So, so we have our neighbor, doesn't beat his wife, super loving dad, faithful worker, honest guy, mows his lawn. Everyone says, if, if you've met a good person, this is a good guy, Right? The insignificant stuff, mowing his lawn, the, the big stuff, loves his wife and kids and cares for them and supports them. He's measured as a good man. What's not the center of his motives that matters? He's Christless and he's godless and why he does what he does. And it means everything that he does is tainted with his sin. He's an, he's an idolater at the base of it. And, and I think we see that like in abortion is that because we actually say we love the mom, I'm talking culturally, and excuse the, the violation against God's image bearers, our culture doesn't have a compass to see what they're doing well, but it's actually just fulfilling Romans 1's ex expression of they're rejecting the image and the creator whose image we bear. Right? Okay, I think that's it's helpful for, for me because... We look at point four here, people will become worse and worse. I, I, I get a little bit tired of the doomsday stuff that we hear. Listen, is homosexuality ascendant? Like as in, is it like way worse than it's ever been? Please say no. Thank you. Have you read the Bible? Like Sodom and Gomorrah? Open, public, homosexual rape was accepted in that culture. We're not quite there yet. <laughs> like, it's bad. I just, I, I just suggest to you that, that there are cycles, but as a general trend, the whole worldwide, I think we're seeing that we get worse and worse and we excuse it and justify it. I think that's a clear New Testament pattern, contrary to post-millennialism, which would say that things are going to get better and better and Christ is going to come back. So, All right, judgment. God sends a climactic judgment at the end of the age. He pulls his people out from among the peoples through a rapture. I think you see this both in Revelation and Daniel. During the seven-year period of, of wrath, they are progressively worsening judgments. 
And I've kind of outlined them for you in the order they fall in Revelation. Finally, Christ comes in a decisive victory and defeats Satan and all unbelievers in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Revelation's a challenging book, but it's not, it's not as mysterious as many would like it to be. Um, if, if you recognize the trends of Revelation, I think it's, it's accessible. It's not easy, though. God seems to withdraw much of restraining grace and give Satan access on an unprecedented level to work his evil in this world. I think 2 Thessalonians makes that clear. I do think part of God's restraining influence in this world is you, his church. Like, I mean, there is an influence even in our politic, in our country, that believers have. Right? Like, like there's, there's voter block power, but there's also just like loving your neighbor influence where Christians living well influence people around them to do, to do well and to live for God. All right, grace. Grace is demonstrated through the provision of Abraham's seed, Christ. Grace is demonstrated through an uninhibited gospel, as in it's not just for the Jews. Right? Christ says in Luke, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He doesn't mean every human. He means all type of humans, not just Jews, but Greeks as well. Um, uh, number three, even during the tribulation, many from both Israel and the Gentiles are saved. Many Jews will finally recognize their Messiah. Uh, that's what Zechariah says. They will look on him whom they pierced. It seems as though, if you take Zechariah, literally one-third of all Israel turn to their Messiah and are saved, which fits with Romans uh, 9 through 11. Okay, there are two witnesses that come to Israel with the message of the gospel in Revelation. They're protected from harm during their appointed time. It's possible that the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe are saved under their ministry. I, I think this is not insignificant, but I don't want to get deeply into eschatology. If you're to read the book of Revelation, have you heard of the 144,000? Even Hollywood's heard of them. I'm sure there's some movie somewhere called this, right? Like some, some lame thing. I sure has no clue what's going on in the book of uh, Revelation. But when you read Revelation, it says there's 12,000 from each tribe. What's interesting is when you get to Revelation and you get to the wrath of God being poured out, do you know what is not mentioned hardly at all in the whole book of the, uh, Revelation after chapter 3? The church. You know what is mentioned a lot? Israel. So, so most people, and I'm just going to tell you what people hypothesize, that Moses and Elijah are the two prophets resurrected. I, I, I don't have a strong opinion. The reason for that would be the miracles and the fact that they're Israelite prophets um, seem to indicate that these two men may, in fact, be resurrected prophets from the Old Testament. Remember, at the end of Malachi, it says Elijah will come before uh, so, I think, it's, I think it's likely. I don't have a strong opinion on whether or not it's Elijah and Moses. Some people think it's Enoch, because he never died. So, yes, H.J.? Yeah. Um, I would suggest that there is something, I don't know how to say this well, but it seems as though Jesus both says he's Elijah and says he's not. Like, Jesus is asked, is this Elijah? He's like, no. If you would have received, he'll be Elijah. And then another place, it's like, yeah, he's Elijah. 
So what I do with that is suspect that we actually have a literal Elijah coming later, but John comes in the spirit of Elijah. So does that help? You want to ask a follow-up question? Okay. Um, so uh, those, those prophets are killed in the middle of the uh, tribulation and then uh, intense persecution. It's really an interesting indictment against humanity in, in the tribulation period because those two prophets are killed and the whole world celebrates and exchanges gifts. It sounds a lot like Christmas because of the murder of these two prophets. I will tell you, as a warning sign in your spiritual life, when you celebrate and exchange gifts because two people get murdered, that should be a red flag you're not doing well. Okay, like, that is not a good sign. Um, and God's, God's great and terrible wrath gets poured out intensely at the last half of the tribulation. That's why it's called the, uh, the great day of God's wrath. Um, Israel, uh, those two witnesses come up. Then many from Israel point, uh, uh, Roman numeral two there. Many from Israel, Jewish Christians, cry out for the Messiah to come. And when he comes, many Jews believe and are saved. That Zechariah 14 makes that clear. Gentiles. It's likely that passages like Revelation 7, where Jews are saved in the tribulation and listed before the Gentiles, indicates that Gentiles return to God in the latter portion of the tribulation. Um, I think you can see in Revelation 14, the Jews get saved. In six, uh, Revelation 14, 6, the Gentiles are also listed. Uh, further, the coming of the Son of Man will entail judgment between the sheep and the goats from all the gathered nations, according to Matthew 25. The sheep from the nations would refer to Gentile believers saved during the tribulation. All right, page 17. The gospel will continue to be preached. At, um, Revelation says, and I love this phrase, it's an eternal gospel. It's one of the reasons that um, I think, generally speaking, all believers would, would hold to a gospel of the Old Testament that is the same gospel as the New Testament. Ours is just more clearly defined. Any idea that there is a different gospel is simply unbiblical. It's an eternal gospel. It will never stop being the gospel. It seems that the church will not be added to after the rapture. So what does fellowship and rule look like in this age of grace? God has, in a final sense, made full provision for fellowship and reconciliation through the fully satisfying death of Christ. Individuals are priests to themselves and need no uh, intermediary to approach God himself. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This statement is in contrast to the former manner of worship that was mediated through the temple in Jerusalem. Israel, having rejected the Messiah, the church, is now God's chief witness and instrument during this age. It is the pillar and support of the truth. In essence, the church is God's divinely appointed trustee of his truth during this particular economy. The church extends God's will and rule principally through the proclamation of the truth, uh, the royal law, and by being salt and light uh, to individual peoples and cultures. One day in the future, the church as Christ's wife-to-be will be Christ's co-regent with him on David's throne. McCune uh, says that the dominion mandate is fulfilled in the exercise of lordship over all creation to the glory of God. That is not something the church is necessarily doing as a church mission. So I would see, and I, I kind of brought this up before, um, religious and, and let's say secular rule in, in Israel is unified, and the church, I think it's separated. 
So you have Jesus actually making that point in Matthew 22, and he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Uh, that should be understood to be a good passage on the separation of church and state. That is, the church is actually where we express our obedience to God's, uh, let's say, spiritual mandates. And then we have general moral civic mandates, and we express those under our government in our society. Um, and along that would, would come things like lordship over creation. I think an air conditioner is a good example. It's one of the ways we express lordship over creation. We've harnessed the principles of creation, physics and chemistry, manufacturing, so now we can control our weather in small spaces. I'm really thankful that we have, at least in our home, dominion over the temperature in Bakersfield. But, th but that requires us to take, and that's where I'm saying, like, I, I think that's where principles of good governance come in. You know, what does it look like to have an organized good society? Uh, the Bible says in Romans 13 that, that the government is God's sword bearer. And, and so, it actually calls him God's servant. So one of the ways I obey God is in my civic duty. One of the ways I obey God is within the church in my spiritual duty. All right. Every foreign and unchristian thought is to be brought into obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, from the Melchizedekian right-hand rule of the Father's throne, Jesus dispenses spiritual blessings and power to his people. These are to be translated into good works which glorify our Father and become a savor of knowledge of Christ in every place. The Holy Spirit working as Christ's alter ego during his absence. By the way, that's what John 14 really makes clear. Right? Like the Spirit is not glorifying himself. Who is he glorifying? Christ. That's one of the reasons I, I would suggest to you, like the fascination with the Holy Spirit that you get in your charismatic churches is unbiblical. What's the Holy Spirit's duty in this age? Right? Christ goes, he sends the Spirit. He says, this is better for you that I go away so I can send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to talk about himself. Who is he going to talk about? Jesus. He's going to talk about Christ. He's going to point people to Christ. So who is, I mean, a little bit like a mirror, why do you have a mirror? Yeah, does, you don't get a mirror, a functional mirror. I mean, I suppose you could get one like in your house as a decorative in your living room or something. But I'm talking about like a mirror in your, in the, like your bathroom as you're getting ready in the morning. Do you get the mirror to see the mirror or do you get the mirror to see yourself? Right? You get the mirror to see you. You don't get the mirror to see the mirror. The Holy Spirit is a mirror. And through him... And the word of God, we see Christ. All right, so uh, I think that I think it's helpful. So there are no Christophanies, Theophanies, or other manifestations of God's presence because Christ's presence is manifested through uh, the Holy Spirit who indwells Christians. All right, dispensation number seven. I'm just going to hit this real quick. Yes. We don't have the Levit Levitical priestly human. We have we have the divine son whom we speak to directly. So yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not 
taking away the intermediary work of Christ, I'm taking away the intermediary work of the Levitical priesthood. So if you want to write that note in there, that's, that's what I'm referring to. Let me ask you, H.J., do you speak directly to God? Who's the intermediary to God for you? God. Right? And you can pray to all, all three persons in the Trinity. So I think what, what we should really be clear on is we don't need an intermediary. We don't need a pastor to pray for us. No, because we need healing. I'm sorry? Well, just, just right in there then, we need no, we need no uh, earthly sinful priesthood. Right? Because every, every priest in the Old Testament was a sinner. Hebrews makes it clear that they're all set aside. But we, have you ever heard of the priesthood of the believer? Okay, so that's a, that would be a common theological way we would describe our relationship to God, that is we worship God directly, not indirectly. So I, I maybe, maybe um, Hebrews 4 would be a good defense of this, right? We boldly come before where? Right, think mercy seat. Like, I think that's the right way to think of that. Who does? We do. That's what I'm saying. Does that help? Okay, so, Jeremy? Right, that's... Yeah. Right, and I think probably where it's, it may be poorly said is, I think it's First Timothy 2, where there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I'm not trying to eliminate his mediatorial rule between us and the Father that way. I am trying to eliminate the idea that we have some type of um, go-between between us and the divine. We, we enter into the divine presence when we worship, right? I mean, we are a temple. We and you. Um, first Peter? Yeah, I would, I would, be, I would see that as, as a defense of this. I just want to think through how I... I mean, process it broader than that than just shoot from the hip, but probably. Yes. Me too. Yeah. Sure. So, so those are, um, Christophanies and Theophanies are the manifestations of God in the Old Testament. So a Theophany would be like the burning bush. God is not a bush. He's not a bush on fire. And yet, at the same time, he presents himself as one in the Old Testament, right? That's a, that's a, it's a theo, which means God. That, that idea of a theophany is an appearance or presentation of God. So a Christophany, then, Carol, would be a... She's writing. I know, yeah. So I, I asked you a question. You're in the middle of writing. A Christophany is the appearance of Christ. I would, generally speaking, take almost all of the appearances of God in the Old Testament as Christophanies. That is, Christ appearing. So, uh, I'm going to shoot from the hip here, and I may be wrong, but I think it's Gideon worships the angel of the Lord that's sent to him. I would take that angel of the Lord and take angel loosely there as messenger, because that's the word. It means messenger, and we usually think of angel as this celestial messenger. This celestial messenger is not merely a messenger. It's like a capital M or capital A angel messenger. Okay? 
Christ himself. Otherwise, there are times where someone tries to worship an angel, and you know what the angel of the Lord always says? Stop! I'm, I'm a fellow servant. I am not the one to be worshipped. So when you have an angel getting worship, it's, it's Jesus Christ himself coming as a messenger for the Father, which is pretty cool. Yes, Haley? Yes? What? I would take it. That, that's generally my position. I, I haven't tried to work through everyone and fully defended it, but yeah. That's kind of my assumption until I see otherwise. Well, the reason you might want to still hold the theophany is it gives you a little bit more ambiguity to be not wrong. And, and Jesus Christ is God. So, so it's not incorrect to also say theophany, and so I, I don't have a problem with that. I think where you might see, you might call it theophany, is the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. What? Pneumophany? Pneumo- that's hard to say, pneumophany. Um, all right. Yeah, you're welcome. So you guys have slowed me down. Uh, I know our... Um, our teachers who are planning to teach this summer are going to be frustrated if I keep lengthening the series. So um, let me just pastorally say this. I would rather us get this done well in a way that's meaningful for the church than hurry up and clip through the notes in a way that doesn't really answer questions. So don't feel bad asking questions. Um, our family plans have entirely changed, so I'm going to be here most of June, I think. Um, so I, I can teach a little bit into the summer, but I want to be careful not to clip off uh, our other faithful teachers who are getting prepped for the summer. Um, next week, Lord willing, I, I don't know that I'll say much about the kingdom um, next week. I think those are the final pages that you have this morning. What I would like to do is start talking about the covenants. Uh, so, so you would maybe think as a default that dispensationalists don't believe in the covenants. That's not true. We do believe in the covenants that are mentioned in the Bible. What we, what we don't do is have that as an overriding system um, that governs everything. What we do is try to take what the Bible says and understand it and follow it. All right. Any final questions before I dismiss? Yes, Reuben. Right?
I will try to get a really clear answer for you next week. Because I, I, think, I think perhaps the concern is if John is Elijah, then there doesn't need to be another Elijah in Revelation. I think that's the concern being asked. So I would rather, I'd rather do a little bit more uh, thinking and writing. But I think H.J. is asking a question that has to, has to do with how exactly we're taking John the Baptist and the prophecy that an Elijah will come and prepare the way of the Lord. Is it, is it something that we should still expect, or was it fully fulfilled in Elijah in the New Testament era? That, is that fair to the question? Okay. So, like I said, I, what I would like to do is, is get a... Uh, a more thoughtful answer with some scripture text on paper, and then I'll probably just hand that out as like an appendix, uh, maybe next week if I can get it done by then. So, hopefully that'll be helpful to your question too. All right, let's close in prayer, and then you guys can go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ. We realize that uh, many of the questions we want answered, uh, you have not given us the answers to. And that means that we don't need them to have a life of godliness that pleases you. On the other hand, we also recognize that some of the things that you've called us to understand take hard work. They're, they're tough to chew. They're not milk meant for babies. It's meant for those who have uh, their ability to discern, exercised by work and diligence. Lord, I ask that you would give us a spirit of diligence, that we would be faithful and we would labor at your word to understand it. I ask that you would guard us from pride that you would help us to be submissive to what we do know in the scriptures and that we'd be eager to learn more. Uh, Father, we know that we could spend uh, a dozen lifetimes and never master this text. And I pray more than just mastering it, it would master us, that we would be owned by the word of God from beginning to end, that it would govern our lives, it would shape our character, it would energize our prayer, that we would commune with you on the basis of, of the revealed word of God, and that you would find your people pleasing to you because we walk with you through your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.